Good morning, and welcome to our Bible Hour Ministry here at Faith, as heard via sermon audio each month. It is always our hope and prayer that these messages will be both uplifting and encouraging to you all, especially in these trying times. Charles Dickens, in his famous novel, The Tale of Two Cities, wrote, quote, It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair, end of quote. Does that not sound like it could be a description of our present society? This famous historical novel of 1859 describes the events and characters during the period of the French Revolution, which took place between 1789 and 1799 and in particular, as set in London, England, and Paris, France. This was a most dangerous and frightening time to be a French citizen, and during that revolution there was an especially infamous period of time known as the Reign of Terror, beginning in the May of 1793 and lasting until August of 1794, in which thousands of citizens were guillotined, including King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. There can be no more cruel and barbaric form of execution than beheading, and anyone who was not supportive of the ruthless new government now in control was quickly eradicated from society. Now the reasons which gave way to the French Revolution and its reign of terror were not at all unique. Their previous form of government was the monarchy, and it became increasingly unable to address the serious economical, social, moral, and religious crises at hand. And so, as we see throughout all of history past, that it is in such circumstances that governments are overthrown, whether peacefully through elections or violently through revolutions. And the one thing that needs to be clearly noted is that the forces of darkness are always involved in the latter type of overthrow. And the end result is seldom pretty. When Dickens wrote, it was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, he was not referring to day or night, but rather spiritual light and spiritual darkness. There is such a battle now taking place in the world today. And the cloak of deception is the widespread fear of the created virus unleashed upon societies worldwide which governments are using to secretly bring their people under complete control by forcefully robbing us of our God-given freedoms and freedoms which 
are enshrined in our Charter of Rights and the Constitution. It is all in preparation for the coming day of a one-world government. It is a battle between light and darkness, good and evil. And as the Lord's return draws closer, the battle will intensify and destroy countless millions of souls. The Bible tells us in Matthew 10, verses 16 to 18, that the Lord sends us forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. Is that not already happening today? Have you ever wondered why the churches are being closed down and others being burned to the ground? And why pastors, even in our own country, are being imprisoned for simply preaching the gospel as God commanded them? Oh, dear friends, these are the last days. This is when the enemy is going to be bold in his attacks on the church of God. And the only way to defeat darkness and rescue souls is through the preaching of the word and Christ crucified. And so with those thoughts in mind, let us turn to our main text for this morning to Luke chapter 7, verses 19 to 23. And I've entitled the message, Art thou he that should come? Luke chapter 7, verses 19 to 23. And John, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? When the men were come unto him, they said, John Baptist hath sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And in that same hour he cured many of their infirmities, and plagues, and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way. And tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and to the poor the gospel is preached. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. May God the Holy Spirit grant us the wisdom to understand the text before us. But as always, let's first turn to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we once again thank thee for the word of God, which directs our thoughts, our paths, and uh, gives us comfort. It gives us light in times of darkness. And so, Father, we pray that as we deliver this message, that the Spirit of God will be pleased to speak to us through it, encouraging, uplifting us, and always directing us 
to Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. We read in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, 2-3, the following. Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Now Matthew's version gives us a piece of added information that is vital to the understanding of the situation. John the Baptist, described by the Lord himself as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, was in prison. And while he was in prison, two of John's disciples came to him and related all the marvelous works of Jesus. Luke seven eighteen. It was at this point that John then called two of his disciples and sent them to our Lord with the question, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And so the first point that I would like to discuss in the message this morning is the messenger. The messenger. Who was this John the Baptist, and why was he in prison? What was it that he had done? What crime had he committed worthy of prison? This man, John, who was known by many as the prophet of righteousness, was a man of principles and a man of moral convictions. He was a man of strong character, one who would not be easily persuaded by corrupt minds. In the early pages of the Gospel of John, the scriptures introduced John as a man of great humility. He it was who said in John 1.27 concerning Christ, He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it, I am not worthy to unloose. And although John the Baptist often stood in Bethabara baptizing many beyond Jordan, when Jesus came to John to be baptized, John humbly acknowledged to the Savior, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John, suffered him. John the Baptist showed no fear of persons. He was a man of great personal courage and fortitude. He was not afraid to tell it like it was. His sense of right and wrong came not from men, but from God, who is the source and sustainer of all moral righteousness. John was no respecter of persons. When the Pharisees and Sadducees came to his baptism, he said to them in Luke chapter 3, verses 7 to 8, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Neither did he fear to condemn sin in places of high government. What is sin for one man is sin for another man. 
It was because of his faithfulness to God's word that John would later be cast into prison. John was that faithful messenger of God, that that voice crying in the wilderness of sin and corruption. Make straight the way of the Lord, and behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. The scriptures tell us in Mark chapter 1, verse 5, that there went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. We see here the results of this great and faithful servant of God's ministry. It was a baptism unto repentance. It was the acknowledgement on the part of those baptized that they were sinners and deserved God's judgment. In making this acknowledgement, they justified God. However, baptism had no part in their salvation. That could only come through the Lord Jesus himself, whose great atoning work John was proclaiming when he testified in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John never taught that baptism as such could take away sin. His baptism was only the outward acknowledgement of the fact that men were sinners and needed a Savior. And so great multitudes in Israel were exercised in conscience and humbly owned their lost condition by being baptized of John. But many of the Pharisees and lawyers and leaders, we are told, were too proud, too legalistic to make humble confession of their sins and to enter into the baptism of repentance. They came only to observe and to scoff. Nevertheless, this fearless messenger of God continued to proclaim God's righteousness and judgment, even against the ruthless tyrant King Herod Antipas, who had taken Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. We read in the scriptures in Mark 6, verses 17 to 18, that John boldly and publicly proclaimed to Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. And as a result, the scriptures say, Herod himself sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Thus we find John the Baptist bound and cast into Herod's prison. Herein we see a hard lesson. Those who will be faithful to God will inevitably be declared the enemies of the world and its system. Those who expose sin and unrighteousness will soon be the target of the wicked one. Persecution and execution was often the end result for God's faithful messengers. Yet God, who out of love for his people Israel, continued to send his prophets to them 
in order to draw his people back to himself, to turn them away from their sin and wickedness and idolatry. But generation after generation would reject his mercy, would reject his calls to repentance. Even the histories of great bondages and deliveries did not seem to leave a lasting lesson. There could not be a more scathing nor a more condemning statement in all of Scripture than the one delivered by our Savior himself in Matthew 23, verses 33 to 38, when he said to the scribes and the Pharisees, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Berechias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her children, her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And so, as we come back to our main text in Luke's Gospel, we read that John, while in prison, called to himself two of his disciples and then sent them to Jesus with this most important question. Art thou he that should come? Or look we for another. This then brings us to the second point in our message this morning, which I've entitled The Message. The Message. Now that is indeed a most interesting question coming from John. Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? Are you the Messiah that is prophesied in the scriptures that should come, or should we be looking for someone else? Now, why would John the Baptist ask such a question? After all, had he not already identified Jesus in the early portion of John's gospel? Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And had he not already testified, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him, and I knew him not? But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending, and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Had John changed his mind, or had he now some doubts? For if he had, could anyone blame him? 
even men of great conviction and faith still need encouragement and confirmation of their faith. They still need to be reassured that what they believe is indeed the truth. When isolated from the outside world, bound in a prison, whether it is a physical prison or a mental prison, the affliction is no less severe. And what the soul desires most is comfort, assurance, and grace from God that all is well. But I don't believe that was necessarily the reason why John sent his two disciples to Jesus with that question. Some expositors have suggested that John may have been wondering why Christ had never visited him in prison and why he had never sent communication to him. Others suggest that there may have been mixed messages concerning Christ and what John had sent these two disciples with this uh, specific question was to sort out the com confusion. Still others put forth the suggestion that John under duress may have wondered why Jesus was not establishing his kingdom. For if he were the Christ, the son of David, why was he not establishing his kingdom? For surely the prophets have all testified he would. But I believe it was none, other, none of the above. I believe the reason why John sent his two disciples to Jesus with this question was for the most noble of all reasons. John was giving up his ministry because he had realized it had come to an end. And part of that ministry was to always point his own disciples to the one for whom he had prepared the way, Jesus Christ. We see evidence of John the Baptist's humility and faithfulness when we read in the Gospel of John 1, 35-41 the following. Again the next day after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted master, Where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon, and then saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. That is why I believe John sent his last two disciples to Jesus with that question in Luke 7, 20. Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? John was fulfilling his mission right to the very end by always pointing to Christ and leading souls to him. Ye yourselves bear me witness, said John in John 3, 28 to 30, that I said I am not the Christ, 
but that I am sent before him. He must increase, but I must decrease. Oh, what a beautiful example we have here for Christians today. So often Christians who seem to have a little ministry get so involved with themselves and puffed up about how they are serving the Lord and how God is blessing their ministry that they sometimes lose sight of the fact that they must decrease and Christ must increase. If this is not happening, then there will never be any lasting fruit and Christ will not be honored. For what is done in the flesh dies in the flesh. And so later, when John's two disciples find Jesus, they say, John Baptist hath sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? Which brings us to our third and final point in our message this morning, which I've entitled The Messiah. The Messiah. Now, I would like for us to notice that the Lord does not answer their question immediately. Instead, he carries on his ministry. Luke seven twenty one, And in that same hour, he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits. And unto many that were blind, he gave sight. See how carefully our Lord prepares the heart to believe. These two faithful disciples of John the Baptist were given first-hand evidence of the Messiah's credentials. Previously, they had just heard about the miracles performed by Jesus. And possibly they may have been a little like Thomas, who said in John 20, 24, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And perhaps they too needed personal, physical, irrefutable evidence of the miracles which Jesus did before they could genuinely believe in their hearts that this was indeed the one who should come. We mustn't forget that these disciples were John's disciples. They adhered to John. They tended to John even in prison. They were always ready to receive instruction from him because they loved him and would not easily leave him. Perhaps they were still weak in their understanding and knowledge and were wavering in their faith. Perhaps they, like Many of us needed more solid instruction and confirmation. And perhaps they were a bit biased in this matter. Perhaps because of their love for John and their loyalty to him, they were zealous for their old master, John the Baptist. And they were jealous of the real master, the Lord Jesus. And could it be that they were a little hesitant to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah because he would eclipse their own master? And so when John sent them with the question, Art thou he that should come? 
or look we yet for yet another. It was not so much a question to confirm the Baptist's claim and faith, but rather a question which, when answered by the Lord himself, would provide irrefutable evidence to the two disciples themselves and would now put them under the guardianship of the great shepherd himself, because John's death was now imminent. And herein is the purpose to which all genuine servants of the Lord are brought. If we are truly his, then all whom we win for Christ, we must bring to Christ and leave them under his influence and guardianship. For he must increase and we must decrease. And so the Lord Jesus gives the two disciples a threefold irrefutable testimony that he is indeed the one who should come, that he is the prophesied Messiah. First, his works testified of his Messiahship. They saw in that same hour the great and awesome power of God at work in Jesus Christ. The blind could see when he touched their eyes as in Matthew 9.29. The lame could now walk because Jesus simply commanded its soul, as in Matthew 9.6. The deaf could now hear because the master touched them, as in Mark 7.33. The lepers are now cleansed by a simple touch and a word, Be thou clean, as in Matthew 8.3. Those who were possessed with devils, he cast out the evil spirits by his word and healed all that were sick, Matthew 8, 16. And even the dead came back to life in response to the power of his word. I say unto thee, arise, as in Luke seven fourteen, as in the case of the widow's dead son. What a powerful impact that must have had on these disciples to see with their own eyes the very miracles of God performed in their presence. But then there was a second irrefutable testimony that Christ was indeed the Messiah, and that was his doctrine. For he preached the gospel to the poor, the glad tidings of the kingdom. It was one of the unmistakable signs of the Messiah predicted by the Old Testament prophet Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound." There could be no doubt who Christ was, according to Isaiah. But there was also a third testimony to testify of his Messiahship, and that was his compassion, his compassion for the poor. The Pharisees despised the poor and looked down upon them with contempt. The rabbis would not instruct them because they were not able to pay. But the scriptures foretold that the son of David should be the poor man's king. 
not only those who were poor in material worth, but the meek or the poor in spirit. Psalm 72, verse 2 reads, He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. Verse 4, he shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy and shall break in pieces the oppressor. Verse 12, for he shall deliver the needy when he crieth, the poor also, and him that hath no helper. Verse 13, he shall spare the poor and needy and shall save the souls of the needy. Go. Go now and tell John what you have seen, Jesus tells the disciples. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. To the poor the gospel is preached. And be sure to tell John above all that blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. What a precious answer to the question that John sent with his disciples. Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. And sometimes we need to be reminded of those precious words. Sometimes it is very easy to either be discouraged by the things about the things of Christ or be shamed into denying our Savior for many reasons, whether it is fear of persecution, fear of ridicule, or simply lack of assurance because of dire circumstances. But the Savior's last comment to the disciples, blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me, is no less meant for us today than it was meant for John's disciples and John himself. How else, more clearly or fully, could the Lord have answered their question than in the way he did? To the Samaritan woman at the well, he answered by his words, I that speak unto thee am he, John 4.26. But here he spoke by his words, by his doctrine, and by his compassion for the poor in spirit. Now, the scriptures do not tell us what these two disciples said to John when they returned, but I would like to think that they returned to John greatly encouraged and rejoicing that they have truly found the Messiah. And I would like to think that in their excitement and exuberance, they greatly encouraged John's soul as they related to him firsthand and afresh the marvelous works of the Messiah. Now, John, too, was blessed, for the Savior's words were still fresh in his ears, and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. This was also, I believe, a clear confirmation to John that his ministry had been faithfully fulfilled and had now come to an end. And so ends our message as well. But before I step down from this platform, I must ask you this question. Have you ever received this one whom the scriptures call Jesus Christ as your Messiah 
as your Savior? Or are you still looking for another? Unfortunately, there are billions around the world today who are still looking for another, who have not yet received this Jesus spoken of in the scriptures. They still question his authority to forgive sins and his ability to save their souls. But his answer as the Son of God and the creator of all heaven and earth and the only Savior of all mankind is still the same. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him will ye receive. Oh, I trust, dear friends, that no one here this morning is still looking for another. For there is only one Savior of mankind. There is only one who ever went to the cross of Calvary to shed his precious, perfect, and sinless blood for the sins of the whole world, and that was Jesus Christ. It is through faith that we are saved by grace and not by anything else that we have done or can ever do ourselves. It is the gift of God to all who believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, won't you trust him today if you haven't done so already? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank thee so much for this precious story of John the Baptist in sending out his two disciples to the Savior to question him, art thou the one that should come, or do we look for another? Father, we thank thee for the word of God that we have that tells us that there is only one who can save, and his name is Jesus. Part us now with thy blessing, we pray, and if the Lord be not come, may it please thee once again to bring us together round his table next Lord's Day. For we always ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen.